Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dohop. Dohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, wishing everyone a happy August. This may sound really strange, but I also want to wish everyone a cooler August than July, which apparently was the warmest month on record. And not just because Messi started playing soccer in Miami. Scott McCartney, how cool will your August be? <laughs> ben, in Texas, August is just another word for hotter than hell. But, but I am excited to talk to Colby Harvey about his hot technology, which brings both drones and artificial intelligence to the world of aircraft maintenance. I think the industry will warm to that idea rapidly. Despite all the heat, we did have some cooler airline earnings results, didn't we, Ben? This seems very curious, and I wonder if it's the first sign of some softening, at least in pricing. Well, Scott, there's a biking race that may still happen, mm -hmm. at least used to happen in Wichita Falls, called the Hotter Than Hell 100. Yep. And it's, and it's done around the hottest part of the year. So Texans know how to deal with this. Yes, they do, as long as our electricity grid holds up. <laughs> That's right. And Scott, we're going to see about the softening. Alaska Airlines reported good earnings, beating expectations. The airline had record revenue, but Alaska said the third quarter, which we've just started, will see revenue growth that's flat to up to maybe 3%. That's slower growth than the 7% jump in revenue Alaska had in the second quarter. And Southwest reported a big drop in unit revenue plus higher costs. Revenue per available seat mile dropped a whopping 8.3% for Southwest compared to second quarter of last year. Southwest said lower RASM and higher costs are going to continue into the third quarter too. Southwest shares fell about 10% on this news, and so did Alaska shares. I don't think it's time to panic yet, Scott. Both Alaska and Southwest are mostly domestic airlines. They don't have long-haul international flights. This summer, long-haul international is doing great for Delta, United, and American. Last year, the domestic heavier airlines did great, so this may be just evening out some of the post-pandemic recovery. 
On the other hand, higher costs are going to have an impact, and Southwest is already accruing for higher labor costs, even though the airline is still in mediation with its pilots. I agree, Ben. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Southwest does with revenue. I heard Southwest Chief Executive Bob Jordan citing a basket of causes in one TV interview. Removing expiration dates from flight credits caused a lot of the RASM decline, he suggested, because apparently thousands and thousands of travelers use credits to fly that otherwise would have expired. I actually did some of this myself, so I understand what he's saying. There were, there were several credits sitting in my account, and uh, why give Southwest a free loan? I, I uh, used them up this summer. He also said that Southwest was getting back to full strength in terms of planes and pilots and was ahead of plan on that. So there was extra capacity, and some of those extra seat miles lowered the revenue per seat mile. That's good news for the operation, by the way, and Southwest does seem to have recovered from a lot of its winter troubles. Jordan said Southwest had its lowest second quarter cancellation rate in a decade, despite a lot of really bad weather this summer. And he said Southwest will have all of its aircraft flying by the end of the third quarter, one quarter ahead of schedule. I think we sometimes forget that Southwest hasn't had all its aircraft flying. It won't be pilot constrained anymore, he said, and the full network will be restored by the end of the year. Jordan also said Southwest was 70% booked already for the third quarter, again, ahead of plan. Demand is still very strong, he insisted. But that doesn't mean pricing will continue to be strong. Yes, people want to fly, but maybe they are getting back to being a little more price sensitive. One other note on Southwest. Bob Jordan said the airline is adjusting its network next year for the new travel patterns that look more and more like long-term changes. Business travel is still lagging leisure, so Southwest will make further changes. That means dropping more short-haul flights. Short-haul next year will be 38% of Southwest network, down from 41%, he said. That seems like a big drop. Southwest will also lighten up on some weekdays and bulk up on others. We've seen airlines talk about how now every weekend seems like a long weekend. At Southwest, typically a Tuesday schedule is 2% lighter than a Monday schedule. Next year, Tuesday will be 8% smaller than Monday. Monday is the new Sunday. And Southwest will reduce pre-6 a.m. departures and after 10 p.m. takeoffs. Those flights are often favored by business travelers trying to make same-day meetings or get home to avoid another overnight stay. More evidence of significant changes in air travel, don't you think, Ben? I agree, Scott. And I also agree with Bob Jordan that these trends are looking more permanent. And I think the kind of changes they're making are going to make sense for them. The key will be whether they can keep their aircraft utilization up by not flying those early and late flights because utilization helps build the ASM base, which lowers their unit costs also. So it's going to be interesting how they can adjust to this new traffic 
but maintain cost discipline, especially if people are going to pay less for the fares. Another thing to think about, Scott, is last summer, fares were very, very high. And then we had a very strong fall. It's possible that some of that strong fall last year was traffic that wanted to fly in the summer, but the fares were too high, so they waited for a better deal in September or October. This year, with fares not so high in the summer, maybe we won't have as strong a fall. We'll have the normal kind of fall, but not sort of people who are waiting. If you were waiting for a cheap fare, you probably already got it this summer. Yeah, very interesting. And if you're waiting for cheap fares, if uh, if all this capacity is coming back at Southwest, uh, you may find some cheaper fares in the fall, especially, as you say, if there's not as much demand because people have satisfied their, their uh, summer travel needs. In other news, United said it would cut 45 flights a day from its Newark, New Jersey hub the rest of this summer because of delays and cancellations. United had earlier said it was going to thin out its fall schedule because of Newark problems. You'll recall that air traffic controller shortages are really taking a toll on New York area airports, and United in particular has had major difficulty handling disruptions in Newark. And our friend Chris Sloan pointed out some interesting numbers to us on startups Avello Airlines and Breeze Airways that were compiled by website enilria.com. It's E-N-I-L-R-I-A.com for those interested. Both carriers have to report revenue and expenses to the Department of Transportation, so we get a glimpse of results even though neither is a public company. The results are for the first quarter of this year, usually the weakest quarter for airlines. Avello reported an operating loss of just under $10 million and an operating margin of negative 17%. That all seems reasonable, encouraging really, for an airline just getting its footing at the slowest season of the year. But Breeze reported numbers that are kind of eye-popping, and not in a good way. Breeze had an operating loss of more than $48 million for the three months, and an operating margin of negative 71%. Breeze spent $1.71 for each dollar of revenue it took in. Breeze is well-known to listeners since Airlines Confidential has had both founder and CEO David Nealman and President Tom Doxey as guests. Avello is run by Andrew Levy, former CFO of United Continental and former Chief Operating Officer of Allegiant. Both startups are trying to fill in routes not flown by bigger airlines. I think it will be more interesting to see how the two fare this summer when we get those numbers later. Well, let's start with New York. What a mess that can be with air traffic control and all these big airports fighting for the same airspace. I think what United's doing makes sense. The question is, are they going to cut some of the smaller, slower airplanes that fly short all service to upstate New York and into Pennsylvania and things like that, because I don't think they're going to drop the long-haul transatlantic 
or transcontinental flying and probably not cut much Florida either. So that cut's going to have to come from shorter or mid-range flying, probably a lot of which is flown by United's regional partners. On Breeze and Avello, I agree with you that Avello seems to be in better shape. A first quarter loss isn't terrible, and they're small, and they seem to be within eyeshot of figuring out how to be profitable. Breeze, on the other hand, like you said, spending $1.71 for each dollar of revenue is further away. And the question is, can they grow out of this or do they have to restructure who they are to get out of this? It's going to be very interesting to watch these two airlines. And we may want to have Tom Doxey and Andrew Levy both back on the show at the end of the summer to talk about how things have been for the last year. Yeah, I think that would be great. Let's, let's work on that. And I think, you know, it's an interesting point about New York, by the way. You're right about the shorter routes, and those routes feed the bigger flights. So there may be a couple of fewer passengers on each of those long flights, which makes them less profitable. Even cutting the shorter routes can really hurt. And so this this is really a problem that um, just can't continue. We've got to figure out New York, got to figure out the controller shortage, got to figure out the airspace issues. Um, it's just got, there's a solution somewhere, got to get it going. Well, speaking of solutions, Airlines Confidential is sponsored by Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue from lower costs and from maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. We also want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. Now let's welcome Colby Harvey, one of the brightest young minds thinking about a very important part of the business today. I met Colby a couple years ago at the MRO convention, and any of you who have been to one of those conventions knows that they're big and lots of noise, and there's all kinds of people who will machine things for you in all kinds of ways and want to talk to you about how they can fix your planes better or make your engines run better. 
But Colby stood out among the crowd. He had this huge drone above his booth, and he was excited and had this video and was talking to people about the future of the aircraft inspection business. And he really stood out. We've stayed in touch. The company is now called UltraView. And Colby, we're excited to have you here. Tell our listeners about your background and how you got interested in aviation. Sure. Thanks, Ben. And thanks for the introduction. It's really good to be here with you, you again. Um, and Scott, you as well. Yeah, uh, into my background. So, you know, a little bit about me. I'm, you know, I've been running uh, Old Review. Now it's new name. Uh, it started a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, but we've really been in this for about four years. So a lot of my professional career has been in this, given that, um, let's say I, I wasn't born yesterday, but I did graduate college, um, you know, back in 2018. So kind of a fresh start jump for me. So with that being said, I um, I grew up in an aviation family. I've been in the in and around aircraft for pretty much the majority of my life. And so I have, a, I mean, a, a pretty significant passion for these things. In fact, I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy to be a pilot, specifically for fast aircraft. But, you know, I'm six foot five. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen fighter pilots, but they're <laughs> fairly short. <laughs> But I wanted to find a way to still be involved in the aviation industry in some capacity without necessarily working in it. So that's where I really came up with the idea for for, for AltraView. I was formerly a Googler. I worked at Google Cloud after, right after university um, and also held several positions within Fortune 500 companies um, while I was going through university, like you know Charles Schwab and American Express. So, Colby, tell us tell us what UltraView is and uh, and how it works. So, what UltraView is is a solutions company. What we are doing is providing a unique inspection solution for our customers. And in this case, this is being third party aircraft repair station or MROs and airlines that have their own maintenance operations. We provide a state-of-the-art US-made and design and built drone to inspect the fuselage of an airframe using high resolution cameras um, and 3D LiDAR to also allow for mapping. We find different damage types on the aircraft that may exist, lightning strikes, hail strikes, any type of anomaly that happens during normal in-flight uh, in servicing and relate all that information back to a, a technician, which is significantly faster than the traditional inspection method and a lot safer. Um, you know, I don't know about you, I think I'd rather just send a dro drone up instead of kind of walking across the, the crown of a plane. Those things are pretty big. And so the advantage is yep. speed, simplicity. Is there also more accuracy to it? Yeah. Um, you know, going into the advantages of the actual platform itself, uh, it's really safety, you know, you know, first and foremost for, you know, both the technicians, but the, the aircraft itself. I mean, but ultimately it's, it's really the speed in which we can return that aircraft back to service. And the, the traceability that a you know maintenance provider or, or an airline would have throughout their fleet. So, what I mean by you know you know transparency throughout the fleet is that they can understand what happened to that aircraft and they are able to reference it um, once they're going back. That aircraft comes back in um, for a normal maintenance checkup or a non-routine. 
And, and tell us for, for listeners who aren't part of the maintenance world, what are the advantages of finding the, the hail dents or the, or the anomalies or, or just cracks or, or whatever? Is it, is it a safety issue? Is it a fuel efficiency issue? Um, why do we care about nicks and bumps? Yeah, well, those nicks and bumps are might seem minuscule to us as normal consumers, but to an operator, those are, are very big deals. When I, I'll give a quick example. It's every time an aircraft flies through a thunderstorm, the pilot is required to report that thunderstorm. Because what happens is if you have a damage that goes unchecked for too long, you're now introducing safety safety concerns to the actual condition of that airframe, which can lead to significant issues down the line in case there's any parts of that airframe or that fuselage that hopefully there's no rapid decompression but events but damages that you really don't want to be on the, let's say be on the plane if it were to occur well colby it also seems to me that an advantage is your drone essentially digitizes the surface And then every time it does it again, it can compare it to the last time. And over time, you build a real record and file of exactly what's happened to this airplane every time it flies. Right. So that that goes back to the relational historical piece that I was talking about during the traceability uh, for trace, greater traceability of the aircraft. I mean, right now, you know, the industry is making a, a really big push um, and they've made some really great strides in digitalizing their internal tooling. So this is this is taking it to that that, that next step. So introducing historical relational models, um, if I, forgive me for getting, you know, kind of technical, but so we can understand the health condition of that aircraft over time. And then what's really great about it, once we have a lot of that data, we can then create predictive maintenance models. At its core, what we're building is a product that is capable of revolutionizing the safety aspects of the aircraft. And having those historical data references of the aircraft allow us to not only be able to keep those aircraft maintained and up in the, in the air and flying, but creating models that we can put predictive analytics on to understand when that aircraft might fail, when a specific damage or anomaly on the skin of that aircraft might become out of tolerance and really put the the maintenance providers in the driver's seat of maintaining that, that aircraft. That sounds fantastic. So you said you've been at this for four years. What progress have you made up to now, Colby? Do you have a product airlines or maintenance providers can buy today? The short answer is yes. We, we do have a product that is capable of being purchased today by an airline provider. And we're really excited to really roll that out and start getting more and more feedback uh, and data that we can use to really start scaling and growing out more of our features on our roadmap, especially around data and um, anomaly analytics. Do you see more uptake by the military or by commercial aviation, at least initially? So I think initially, and this is, is going to be you know, kind of an interesting statement, but the military is really the, the biggest opportunity for this technology right now. There are regulatory oversights between both the FAA and the OEMs, you know, particularly, I, I believe, you know, kind of Boeing's been working on this. 
um, you know, for some time. It really believes that uh, the flexibility that the military is capable of providing in terms of um, how what tooling systems they use uh, to, to just to be, I mean, I'm really the, the quote unquote low hanging fruit. Even though, I, again, I know that's a large statement to make, especially for the speed in which the military typically moves. So, so just just as part of that, um, you mentioned Boeing, and 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 I know this has been an issue for, for airlines for a long time. Different ways of passing electric current through the skin of the airplane and and detecting cracks and things like that. I'm sure there's a lot of work in this area. What what makes your technology different? Is is it the software? Is it the optics? What why why do you have a difference here? You know, homegrown advantage is really our, our biggest key differentiator. Um, being based in the United States and the largest market in the world is really that core core differentiator. We, in terms of technology, drone technology is pretty novel. You know, by now, so really, it's how we we train the data sets, how we identify the damages, and how we relay information back to our customers that really sets us apart. You know, in this market, and to say really apart, there's going to be some there's going to be a lot of homogeneity between you know companies that are building technologies like this but you know having the capabilities of being able to fly both indoor and outdoor without issues in the same platform and again while being a US made product gives us a lot of great opportunity to operate in this space above our competitors Colby do you think that airline maintenance unions will be excited about this idea or resistant to this idea? That's a great question. Uh, I actually get that quite a bit. So I'll explain it like this. We've, we've had several conversations with different uh, airline uh, maintenance unions, particularly around their feelings and views on this platform. And, you know, you can, you can probably imagine the initial reaction is, you know, a little bit more skeptical, but that, that, that changes once we are able to, you know, to educate, which is all this is a new technology for coming to Indian industry is all about education. So I believe that the product, just like a boroscope, is only meant to increase the capability of the technician, of the person on the ground. It is not meant to replace in any way. And in fact, because this is seen and because this product is a tool to augment the workforce that all of us probably here and listening to this podcast know is, you know, pretty, uh, a pretty big hot button issue right now in the industry. It makes their jobs a lot easier and while delivering value to the customer uh, on the end being you and I and you know, the airlines are happy that they get their air- aircraft back. So ultimately, with all that being said, I really think that once there are a greater effort for educating edu- educating on this particular tool type, maintenance unions will be happy to use it, just like boroscope inspections. Hmm. So what about airline inertia? Um, uh, you know, airlines can be reluctant to take on a new unproven technology. How, how do you help airlines to think differently to accept this new idea? 
I mean, that, that's right. And I mean, just like with the unions, it's, it's really all about education and really showing that this technology has the capability to really increase the throughput of their aircraft and keep them up. So you're very right, you know, to get them to airlines to accept new technologies is quite an uptake because you're not just selling to one buyer. You have to get buy-in from several different business units before, you know, before this technology or any technology is accepted. So I really take the time to educate and sit down with the airline, really put together proof points and metrics and, and really ask them, what do they want to see and what do they, ex- what, what do they expect? And giving them a path and an open community, like open table of communication to really kind of drive home the ideas that they want to, they would like to see the efficiency metrics that they would like to have tracked and then providing all of that to them in a, in a very succinct format. Anecdotally, have you, have you been able to do any sort of side-by-side comparisons of, you know, conventional inspections uh, versus your drone inspection? So we, we're actually currently working on, you know, more of a side-by-side inspection now that over the past several, you know, probably the past several months, we were delivering our, our, our end-user application, which was really where a lot of our core focus was. So now it's, we're in that position where we're, we're having those those tests and trials with with one of our alpha and development partners. Colby, where do you see this growing over the next five to 10 years? I mean, I, I really think, and, you know, sorry for not having a better phrase, but the, the, really the sky is the limit with this, with this tool. What's really been hindering, you know, the, the adoption of the platform and not just not just our platform, but even our competitors and people working in the space. It's really been that regulatory piece. You know, I you know we're we're in a, we're in a great position right now. I, I've you know had several conversations with you know different OEMs and different airlines that are actively engaged in working with the FAA, putting together data points and metrics needed to get the systems up, you know get remote inspection tools, this particular remote inspection tool approved. So I think once that approval happens and, you know, you know my hope is by the, by the end of the year, if, if not Q1 2024, I mean, it, it really just kind of opens the floodgates to allow a lot of opportunity and to allow a lot of, I mean, to really drive this technology to be not just, a, you know, kind of nice to have, but even potentially a required system. And that, and that's what I like. My, my goal is to, you know, whenever we go to the airports, look out and be able to see our drones performing inspections on the aircraft and saying, this is now a novel technology that is used every day uh, to ensure our safety. So the, I'm, I'm curious about that. Is this something that you can do at the airport or does it have to be done in a hangar? So in its current stage with, FAA regulations, uh, it does have to be done, and especially it does have to you know, take place in a hangar. There are, there's, a, there's an asterisk to that statement because there are um, methods in which we can follow in order to have approvals, like you know your, your lands approvals, to operate on the runway of an airport. It's a little bit of a longer process. It's not uniform. Um, and it's kind of more of a one-off type of Band-Aid solution. Uh, which isn't truly scalable. Um, and so that's where the, the, 
you know, the working relationship and partnership between, you know, the, the providers of these inspection tools and solutions, the airlines and the FA are working together to you know, create specific zones even around an air, airport where these drones can fly. That's actually a tricky thing because um, drones are actually banned in, in airspace. I, I've, I've worked with some photographers who use drones and, and have a really hard time. You have to get, get uh, tower permission and all to, um, for the drone to actually be able to fly in, in an airport area. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, to be honest, it's not the uh, hardest thing to tackle as long as you have a strong, you know, airline customer that's willing to, you know, you know, talk to and work with ATC and the field offices to, 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 you know, kind of push the, uh, push the use of the platform outside. But again, yeah. it's not a blanket solution. So Colby, um, can, can you tell us some of your, your partners and what else um, you think our listeners should know about UltraView? Sure. Um, some of our partners, you know, I, I won't get too, too deep into names, you know, on the podcast. One of our partners is, is based out of based out of Tucson there. It's, a, it's an MRO. So we've actually worked with them quite some time to really kind of build up the use case and build up some of our data sets and really, you know, kind of act as a testing bed before rolling out to, you know, larger, larger customers. So, you know, bringing in people that are influential in the industry is extremely important. That really provides, gives us a lot of leverage. I mean, there's, you know, on the defense side, if, you know, brought in a kernel um, that's you know, worked with, you know, startups from zero to billion dollar acquisitions. And that's really our, our really big foothold uh, into the U.S. military. Or, and then different executives, different former CEOs that have, you know, been very active or very prominent figures in the space can really, like, really help to, to build credibility around the, the actual company. In terms of, you know, what else the listeners should know, I, I, I think listeners should be aware of this technology and, and even work and, and, and ask, hey, I'm like, are we thinking about, you know, this type of application? What is it that we want to see? What is it that we want them to do? And really, just you know, kind of be a part of the the next generations of technology. It's it's very hard for companies to come and work in environments that are particular generally you know slow, especially as you know kind of startups in this space as well. So, um, if it's something that you are of interest in and, and you would like to to pilot, I think always be open to to, to newer technologies um, and shake up the status quo. It doesn't all have to be the same. That's great, Colby. And if somebody is excited about this idea, which they should be, of course, how do they contact you or find out more about Ultraview? Yeah, so you can reach me at colby at ultraview.io. Uh, that's going to be my direct and personal email. You know, ultraview.io is our website. I'm working on the .com too, but if you want to learn any more information, please reach out, go there. There'll be a form where you can even, you know, reach out to, to the company and we'll, we'll be happy to have conversations. Awesome. Thanks very much, Colby. It's been really interesting to learn more about this. Appreciate it. Thank you both for having me. I really appreciate the time. And we'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a moment. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. 
Thanks again to Colby for a real interesting look at some exciting developments that will impact airlines and travelers alike. Ben, in this week's mailbag, some good listener questions again. Matthew from Rochester, New York and Vero Beach, Florida writes, the major airlines have reported solid second quarter earnings and strong operating margins. My question is, what in your view are appropriate areas for airlines to spend money on when times are good? We see some of this being shared with employees through more generous labor contracts, but airlines could also accelerate debt repayments to clean up their balance sheets. They could return capital to investors through dividends or buybacks, or they could reinvest in their products, routes, IT infrastructure, and facilities. Where would you spend the money now to make the most of the good times? Thanks. Okay, checkbook open, Ben. How would you spend the profits of 2023? Well, this is fun, and I want your view too, Scott. You know, spending money in good times is a good thing, but holding cash, knowing that the good times are going to become bad times at some point, isn't a bad thing either. So the first thing I would do is say, let's think about what we really need not just what we can afford today. And with that, I would certainly want to spend more on AI and on IT infrastructure because the world is just changing. And the way the airlines communicate with their customers, their staff, the way they staff their operations is all going to be affected by this world. And so getting smart on how to make that useful for them is a great way to spend money. I don't see airlines doing more buyback soon or putting in dividends soon. The problem with that is that they're one-time kind of shot and they don't really invest in the business again even though investors may like the one-time shot. But I think reinvesting or investing in their infrastructure, especially in the AI and IT worlds, is where airlines are going to have the most bang for their buck. Where do you spend money, Scott? Yeah, I would agree for the most part, Ben. Um, Definitely on IT and, and technology. I think the industry is is behind there. I think the, the return on that investment um, can be extraordinary. And, and I think that can do a lot to improve a lot of the other areas, right? Improve customer service, Im- improve uh, employee productivity and other things. I would look hard at the balance sheet. Airlines took on a lot of debt. Um, in the pandemic. Now, some of it may be at very low interest rates, and I wouldn't bother paying paying that off right now. But if there was high interest rate debt, I would get out of that if I had the cash to do it. Um, and I'm with you. I, I would not return capital to investors through dividends or, or buybacks. I'm not a believer in stock buybacks. Uh, I think there are better ways for companies to spend money and nobody's investing in airlines for the dividends. Uh, they're not dividend-paying stocks. There's no, there's no return there. Um, I do think investing in employees is is a good thing. 
I do think when you can, investing in facilities is a good thing. And I think facilities is an interesting aspect here because, you know, the needs are really changing. Um, Airlines don't need big check-in lobbies so much anymore. People aren't going up to the counter, right? They're using kiosks, they're self-tagging bags. Um, That reduces the footprint that you need in the lobby. And I think we've seen, you know, really smart transformation of of lobbies, less counter space for airlines, more space for TSA checkpoints, for example. And some of that, if if an airline can save money by reducing its square footage in the lobby uh, and maybe get it back elsewhere or just save some money on what it's paying uh, for rent at airports, um, I think that would be a good thing to pursue as well. All great ideas. Maybe you should be a CEO, Scott. (laughs) Or maybe not. (laughs) Well, Peter from Connecticut has an interesting question. He says, hi, Ben and Scott. Was wondering what your take is on ACMIs. Those are airlines that provide contract flights for another carrier and 121 supplementals. I was taking vacation in Europe, and I noticed there were a lot of charter carriers operating seasonal flights for major European airlines. I was booked on TAP Air Portugal, but the flight was operated by a Boeing 777 from Euro Atlantic. My question is, why do you think seasonal charter airlines are more popular in the EU and not in the United States? Do you see an opportunity for budget holiday or charter airlines flying only seasonal routes to certain airports in the U.S.? What do you think, Scott? Ben, I think there's a fair amount of charter activity as it is, and it's growing. Uh, Casinos and cruise lines have used charter flights to bring in customers, and we see a growing number of small airlines, even regional carriers, setting up scheduled charter operations so they can use pilots who lack the 1,500-hour hiring requirement for airlines. But Peter is right. There is a much more robust vacation charter industry in Europe. My impression has long been that U.S. consumers aren't as interested in vacation packages as Europeans have been. Part of the growth of the charter business in Europe was because for a long time, Europe didn't have the low fare carriers that the U.S. had. So low fares weren't as available. The big European airlines commanded premium fares. Once Ryanair and EasyJet got bigger, the charter carriers had a tougher time financially in Europe. Peter also mentioned wet lease arrangements where an airline hires another carrier, such as a charter outfit, to provide specific flights. Union contracts in the U.S. generally prohibit that. Pilot contracts, for example, typically say that all flying on behalf of the airline has to be done by that union's pilots. Exceptions are made for regional feed on small jets, but U.S. airlines can't outsource flying to charter outfits the way airlines in other parts of the world can. Other aspects, Ben, what did I miss? You hit the main thing, Scott. What I would add is that for these carriers, meaning the charter operators, to work well, 
they have to work with worldwide seasonality. So they may fly for the European carriers in the summer coming to the U.S., but in the winter, they're not going to get hired for that. So what do they do? They find other parts of the world where that travel can work. And when you think about the domestic U.S., its seasonality doesn't pair well with much of the rest of the world. When it's busy here, it's busy elsewhere. And when it's weak here, it's weak elsewhere. So the U.S. isn't an obvious place for the charter carriers to look to deploy their planes when they need a few months of good profitable flying. They're better off going to South America or into Asia. So I think everything you mentioned plus that is why we don't see as much of this activity in the U.S. That said, ACMI carriers are used in the U.S. on an exception basis to cover operational things. When I was at Spirit, for example, we had situations a couple times where we were going to lose one or two airplanes to maintenance for a longer period than we had originally planned. And we were able, with our pilots union, to hire in some ACMI lift to keep the flights moving while our planes were being maintained. So that's not a long-term every year business, but you do see some of that in the U.S. Really fascinating. Well, that's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone. And if you like Miami soccer, enjoy your new superstar. (laughs) This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.